0: Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. I'm your healthcare host, Christine Hargis, and I've got my usual sidekick, Todd Campbell, calling in. Hey, Todd, how's it going?
1: Hi, Christine. Boy, do we have a packed show today. We
0: have a lot to talk about, yep. It is August 24th, and we were going to talk about pet healthcare today, but this past week has had so many interesting healthcare stories that we decided to save that episode for another time, maybe next week, and instead focus on some recent news items. One benefit is that of that is that it's not too late if you want to call in and leave us a message. You can tell us a crazy pet story or leave us a money-saving pet tip. Thank you to those who have called in already. Our number is 866-677-3665. And if we like your voicemail, we'll play it on the show when we eventually get around to doing our Pet Med show. Pet Med show. But rather than Pet Med, today we're going to talk about Pfizer's acquisition of Medivation and also the pricing hubbub surrounding Mylan's life-saving EpiPen. But first, we wanted to do a little update on Portola Pharmaceuticals. Last Wednesday, we started our episode by mentioning Portola because they were expecting an FDA decision that day on its most advanced drug candidate, which is a reversal agent for a popular new class of blood thinners. But unfortunately, Portola did not receive the green light that they were expecting, and I I was also expecting. And Instead, they received the dreaded complete response letter, which is what it's called when the FDA basically says, no, we're not going to approve this drug, at least not right now under the current conditions. When we taped last Wednesday morning, the stock was at $27. It's now down to $19, which is a 27% drop. What did you make of the news, Todd?
1: Uh, I don't know about you, Christine, but I was refreshing, refreshing, refreshing all day on Wednesday, waiting to see uh, when an announcement would come out. And uh, I got to 4 o'clock, and I was like, hmm, that's interesting, because you know it's summer, and People at the FDA are not sticking around much past that. and uh, I don't think that Portola came out and actually announced that they had gotten the CRL until after my bedtime, anyways.
0: Yeah, which was a little bit surprising. This was the first instance that I know of that there was such a delay. I mean, we were expecting to know this in a very public way on that date. I think it was the, the 17th of August. No, is that? Yeah, the 17th of August was last Wednesday and we didn't really have full information until the next day and i'm not sure if that was a delay on the company's part or if that was the fda but either way there's now a lot of suspicion and tension going on about did management intentionally delay the release of this information
1: right and you saw the shares sharply sell off around 3 i think it was 3 or 3:30 something like that right
0: on wednesday um,
1: Right on Wednesday. So, you know, I, I tend to think that the CRL had been received. Rumor was getting around, maybe the company. Uh, and it just kind of goes to show how surprising this is. You know, the, the drug that's in question was a drug called Indexa. And Indexa was going to be, if approved, the first reversal agent that could be used against a class of anticoagulant drugs called Factor XA inhibitors. And um, Factor XA inhibitors are huge selling drugs, uh, more than $5 billion a year. In sales, uh, but there is no FDA-approved way to reverse their effects. So, if, you know, they're being taken by an elderly person. That person slips and falls, and maybe has a bleeding event. Um, they have to use things that aren't necessarily the best things uh, out there to to stop the, the bleeding, and that has a lot of people, including myself, thinking, "Hey, you know, this, this drug has a really good chance of approval because it showed in clinical trials that it works. It can stop the activity of these drugs."
0: Right, it had very strong clinical results as you mentioned. So then, what did the FDA have to say? Why did they say no?
1: Well, there were three things that were highlighted by the company in the conference call that the FDA cited for the reasons for for issuing the CRL or or the rejection. One was that they had some, what they called, well, we'll call it concerns, concerns about the manufacturing process that the contract a research or, uh, uh, um, facility that was going to be manufacturing Indexa. Um, in the pre-approval meetings that the company had had with the FDA, uh, they had walked away from those thinking that any issues that were raised were minor and would not require uh, fixing um, ahead or derail the application or fixing ahead of the, of the approval date. Obviously, that's not the case because it was the first thing and the most major thing cited by uh, the company has the reasons for rejecting it.
0: Now, I'll point uh, out before moving on to the other reasons that this manufacturing, that's something that the FDA is cracking down on more and more. We saw this with Valiant last month. There is a, another case for AstraZeneca in May for a cholesterol drug. Uh, Opco has had has had some bad news regarding manufacturing from the FDA. And Portola would be a first-time manufacturer too. So, In that regard, maybe it's not entirely surprising that they didn't have the manufacturing capabilities. One hundred percent ready to go, but the reason that it is actually pretty shocking is because they had been so pointed that the management of Portola in saying, "Yes, the messaging that we've received from the FDA is that there are only minor issues which are fixable and which we're all over. We're on top of this, and it shouldn't be a concern."
1: It certainly raises some some questions about, you know, if, is, do we have the right captain at the ship? Right. I mean, even if we do have the right captain of the ship. Um, there's been some stumbles at Portola this year. They've been well stumbles. I mean, there were falls, trips, rolling down hills. I mean, these were <laughs> these were pretty big stumbles. Um, and this is obviously the, the, a big one. You know, you've got the manufacturing issue, which basically there are a lot of different controls that go into producing drugs. And you know, there were some things that maybe they could have resolved ahead of time. This is not a deal breaker. The manufacturing stuff can get resolved just like they did with Opco, with Ray Aldi when the FDA issued a CRL because of their manufacturing and later went on to approve it. So This is not a deal breaker by by any means. Um, the FDA also came out and said, listen, we want more information because you said that you want this drug approved for use with uh, Johnson & Johnson's and Pfizer and Bristol Myers' Eliquis, but you also listed two other drugs. And frankly, we don't have enough data supporting approval for those two other drugs.
0: And that alone wouldn't have caused the rejection. At least, I don't think so, and Bill List, the CEO of Portola, doesn't think so. But this was Supposedly, in the contents of the letter. And I say supposedly because you never actually really know the contents of these CRLs, your complete response letters. You kind of have to take the company's word for it.
1: Yep, exactly. And, you know, the last thing that, that, you know, they had said is that the FDA had requested some information about some various cohorts in the studies that, that, for the data that was submitted. Uh, Portola submitted that information over the course of the past few weeks, and frankly, the FDA just didn't have enough time to review that information. So You had three different things um, that, that caused the CRL. Uh, all of them were unexpected by Portola's management. None of them ultimately should be a deal breaker for eventual approval However, now the timeline for such an approval is is up in the air, and it's anyone's guess.
0: Exactly, and the company is hoping to resubmit by the end of the year, but this is a setback, definitely in terms of timeline, if not so much in terms of whether the drug actually works. Because I think it's clear at this point, the drug does work, and there these are other issues aside from that.
1: Right, and then it comes down to the question, Christina, like, what do you do with it if you're an investor? You know, the market cap of the company is now only 1.2 billion. That's um. Arguably, pretty small given the market opportunity. They would be avail- available to eventual approval in Dexa. You know, you know, the company estimates about 100,000 patients a year could benefit from Indexa's use. Um, you know, price tag of of 3,500 to 5,000, somewhere in that range, wouldn't be, you know, out of the ballpark. You know, so you've got a, a drug that could do a few hundred million dollars in sales, and maybe 1.2 billion is, isn't is kind of light based on that opportunity.
0: Right, and I. I- Personally, remain pretty bullish on this one. I mean, there's definitely a a risk of dilution. That's probably the biggest negative to come out of this. That you know they're now going to take even more time before they start to turn a profit, and in the meantime, they've got to keep their research efforts going. They have to keep the lights on.
1: Yeah, they're spending trailing twelve month expenses about two hundred and sixty four million. So they've got enough money to get them into two thousand seventeen, but you know, God forbid any more setbacks, because at that point they'd have to go out to the market and start raising money.
0: Exactly. And the other big risk to keep in mind here is that this has become a fairly emotional stock. I mean, without actual earnings, people are trading based on their emotions. And to me, that's just a reminder that if you are into a company, if, whether it's Portola or another company, be interested in it for the long term. I mean, I have had this thesis about Portola and it is a long term thesis, it's three to five years, maybe even more than that. And it's only been a year, a year and a half of, of following this company. So for me, I, I personally just need to hang tight. You know, it, it's tough to watch this kind of swing in the price, especially not going in the right direction. But yeah, I, I mean,
1: I'm long the stock as well. I, I didn't sell it. Exactly. I, I mean, I still think there's an opportunity out there, and the opportunity is greater than the $1.2 billion market cap. Um, you know, but it's part of a diversified portfolio. So I mean, just also a good remember, reminder for people, especially in biotech, to make sure that they're spreading spreading their money and their investments around, rather than putting all their eggs in one basket.
0: All good takeaways. So, moving on from tiny, unprofitable biotech to a drug-making kingpin, let's hear your thoughts on Pfizer and the $14 billion Medivation acquisition, which was announced on Monday.
1: This was probably the most forecast acquisition in, uh, in biotech history. I mean, you had Sanofi come out and make two different pu- very public offers for the company. You had Medivation's board reject those very publicly and then say, okay, you know what, we'll accept bids. Start your bidding. And, you know, this was all, you know, we've written about it, I've written about it. Uh, this is, this is um, definitely something that was very well known that the company was shopping itself around. However, the price tag that Pfizer's paying, I will admit, that shocked me.
0: Exactly. Sanofi had previously bid $58 per share for Medivation. Pfizer's paying $81.50 in cash per share.
1: Yeah, nice to have an extra $14 billion kicking around, right?
0: Yeah, I'd like that in my pocket.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a huge premium. I, about a month ago, I, I wrote an article uh, on The Fool where I said that a relatively aggressive price um, you know, might get you to a value of two, 12.5 billion. <laughs> so, so, you know, you, you're, you're paid a, they pay, Pfizer paid $14 billion for a company that, you know, this year thinks it's gonna generate a little bit less than a billion in, in, uh, in, in revenue. So, I mean, At least you know, it's
0: profitable. That, that's good.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. And, you know, the, the benefit of being able to do this deal in cash is, and one of the reasons that Pfizer was able to win this this bidding war was its ability to pay for it in cash, is that there's no financing drag. You know, so you could, they were able to do this deal and still say within the first year, this is going to add five cents to investors' uh, earnings per share.
0: Right, and the main catalyst behind why Pfizer is even interested is for this drug called Extandi, which is a prostate cancer drug that is co-marketed by uh, Medivation and also a company called Astellas. Uh, It started off in just post-chemo in 2012, but in 2014, when it was approved for pre-chemo usage, sales took off.
1: Yeah, this is a huge, this is a mammoth indication. Pfizer isn't buying it because of the trailing 12-month sales that Medivation posted. Pfizer's buying it because Xtandi already has 51% of the market in its two approved uh, prostate cancer indications, and the addressable market uh, in earlier treatment for prostate cancer is, is just absolutely massive. I mean, I've seen Numbers tossed around for peak sales forecasts for this drug that go anywhere from six billion to nine billion per year. Um, you know, obviously, in order to get that, you're going to need to be able to expand its use even earlier uh, to earlier stage uh, cases of cancer. Um, but you know, we've seen you know the company's already conducting tests and trials. Uh, we've already seen some of that data come out, and so far, so good. I mean, they they on um, uh, October are expecting the FDA to make a decision on whether or not uh, to include in the labeling uh, trials that showed that it did just as well as Cassodex, a very highly or well used drug uh, among urologists in treating prostate cancer, with 500,000 scripts written every year. So, I mean, the opportunity in prostate cancer um, is even bigger than it is now, which is pretty amazing, considering you're talking about a $2 billion a year plus drug already.
0: Right. And it is important to remember that Pfizer doesn't get 100% of this revenue. Uh, Mediv- er, well, <laughs> Pfizer previously Medivation. Medivation splits their U.S. profits on Xtandy in the U.S., and they get double digit royalties on Xtandy sales overseas. So they still do have to send a good chunk of that profit back to Astellas.
1: Right, which is why we have trailing 12 month sales of, you know, our forecast for this year of like 950, 960 million in revenue for Medivation. Uh, the royalty rate, because people probably want to know that, um, I think it's about 15% on XUS US sales that Pfizer will now get.
0: Right. So, Xtandi, clearly a big deal, Uh, could be poised to have its label expanded considerably, and definitely a a big catalyst in this acquisition, but also probably important to point out that Medivation does have two other drugs that are in development, one of which is Talazoperib, um, sure. <laughs> yeah, which is being studied in breast, prostate, lung, and ovarian cancers, could get its first approval maybe in 2018. I've seen one estimate for a little under a billion dollars in peak sales. Medivation also has a another early stage drug in development for brain tumors and lymphoma. So there is a little bit more to this pipeline than just Exandi.
1: Right. You could argue that the, the purchase price is based not only on, you know, expecting a, a doubling plus in dandy's peak sales over the course of the next coming years, but also an approval of, of talazoparib. Um, that drug was formerly owned by Biomarin. Medivation bought it. There's a uh, trial uh, ongoing with data expected next year. Um, and if that those results are solid, then yeah, like you said, you know you, they could have another billion dollar drug on the market by 2018. So yeah, there's there's a lot of different reasons to 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 like this deal for what it does to Pfizer as far as re energizing or fueling its f- future growth. And Pfizer has not been shy about doing acquisitions. And it's not been shy about saying that. Hey, listen, we're back to up year-over-year year sales growth.
0: I'd also argue that Pfizer hasn't been terribly successful with its acquisitions, at least not lately. And they really they need a good acquisition now, especially with their their post Allergan failure. You know, we, we talked about that on the show uh, initially when when the breakup fell through for this merger between Pfizer and Allergan. And I would also argue that uh, their recent acquisition of Anacor for 5.2 billion dollars for this one drug, Crisabarol, I think that was probably too much money that they paid for it. I mean, some say that the drug could hit a billion dollars in peak sales, but there's a ton of competition in the space that it's working in, including some from Celgene. And honestly, when I look at this, I don't quite like the deal. What do you think? Do you?
1: Um, I like it because it's immediately accretive. I, th- I think that if they could, if they weren't able to say that it was immediately uh, immediately accretive to the bottom line, then I would agree with you. But as long as we're able to to have it boost profitability uh, based on its current sales pace, not including any other future uh, approvals, then I'm, I'm I think it's I think it's fine. It wasn't cheap. That's for sure. But it was it's fine.
0: Yeah. I, I okay. I would agree with that. I, I don't necessarily dislike the thought behind it. I think maybe it's just the price tag that I'm having trouble getting behind. But so the the price tag and the fact that Pfizer is a very well-known name has made this news story really hit a lot of the major outlets. Which, for the healthcare stories that you and I normally follow and talk about on the show, I don't normally see them in general news. But not only did I see this Pfizer story, but I also saw uh, the next story that we're going to talk about, which has to do with Mylan and their EpiPen, in the major media outlets. So I guess it's. I don't want to say it's been a good week for healthcare in the news because I'm not sure if this next story is necessarily a good reflection of the healthcare industry, but it's certainly been an interesting time to be following healthcare news.
1: Yeah, is it is it happen to be an election year by any chance? <laughs> oh shoot, I forgot about that. I mean, yeah, I haven't
0: seen any stories anywhere.
1: Yeah. I mean I, I think that you know, when when we EpiPen, okay. Yes. EpiPen is an incredibly expensive drug relative to where it was a decade ago, and people are up in arms over this cost because EpiPen is a life-saving drug. I mean, it's basically a shot of adrenaline that you can give into your thigh if you're suffering from a severe or life-threatening um, allergic reaction, such as say, like you've got a nut allergy and you accidentally ate some nuts. Um, so this is—it's a, a life-saving drug, and people are saying, "Hey, wait a minute! How can you go from having a life-saving drug that has had no real changes to it uh, over the course of, of the past decade, and the price of it? Yet the price of it has increased—you know, by fourfold."
0: Right. So that is—that's the the heart of this issue right here. Is, is somebody broke the story that this drug, which has been out there for a while, and it's, it's not even a brand name drug itself anymore. it's actually a generic drug but the brand name thing going on is actually the delivery mechanism itself so this this pen that you can stab yourself in the thigh with and it's only delivering about a dollar's worth of this generic drug but people are are up in arms about the price increases for it this drug or the the pen itself cost about hundred dollars for a pack of two in January of 2009 and now it's up to six hundred dollars. And this is something that's pretty widely used. I've seen estimates that one in 50 Americans are at risk for the kinds of allergies that EpiPen is designed to fight. And many of these are kids. And I think that's really why people are are getting defensive here. I mean, not only is this a, a tremendous price increase for a widely used drug, but it's something that saves children's lives.
1: Right. And, you know, the other thing, too, is that, I mean, when you talk about healthcare and drug discovery, it's a very complex subject it's much more complex than say maybe making a new toy you know if i can build a football for a dollar and sell the football for 12 dollars should i be able to sell that football for 12 dollars problem is there's not nearly as much that has to go into um, you know gaining regulatory approval and proving that you know whatever it is that you have is safe and effective enough to be to, to be on the market so the the upfront costs are are much higher for drugs like you know the drug in the drug delivery system, EpiPen, um, and I think that that's something that you know everybody has to remember that you know these companies take on a big risk when they they innovate, and that cost deserves to be recouped to some extent. Um, I think the real argument is, wait a minute, how come you're able to increase the price 15% in Q4 of 2015, and then another 15% in Q1 of 2016? without having done anything to improve that pen delivery system and i think that that's a fair it's a fair question to ask
0: especially because meanwhile the compensation for ceo heather Bresh has increased from 2.4 million to 18.9 million between 2007 and 2015
1: right and then there's the whole on top of that there's the whole hey, by the way, did you know this, that Mylan did a tax inversion where they moved their headquarters overseas on paper to be able to avoid or lower their corporate tax rate? So, I mean, there's a lot of different moving pieces where we look at this and say, you know, you know this isn't necessarily um, a, a company that's acting in good faith with the American or U.S. citizen, I suppose would be the, the argument. And that's maybe one of the reasons now that um, the CEO is probably going to have some explaining to do in front of Congress.
0: And to add another layer to this story, and you mentioned earlier that it's an election season, that's actually very important to this story, so you have a handful of senators that have decided to to write letters and to, to ask Mylan for some more information about what exactly is going on. And you can see why. I mean, this is a great opportunity for a representative to stand up for the people, You know, to, to go in and, and lay down the law against these uh, gigantic conglomeration, healthier companies that might be abusing the small people. I get that. I totally get that. But when you start to involve politics here, another thing you need to take into consideration is Heather Brescia's father is a West Virginia senator named Joe Manchin. So there's just so many political elements to this story and of course it's going to blow up into this big sensational investigation that's being covered by outlets left and right. And I Right, obviously- and I mean and we don't
1: what we don't want to lose in this whole discussion is the whole or maybe what this points to is the whole question of how are drugs set, how are drug prices set in the US versus other countries and are there changes that are necessary? I mean, how do you how do you have a free market um, where supply and demand should dictate price. And in this case, supply and demand is dictating a price that is obviously at least this high because there's no other competition currently on the market and limited competition on the market here in the US anyways.
0: Right. Um, Something that I I feel like we need to bring up is Mylan's defense here. So Mylan says that it's changed the price of EpiPen over time to better reflect important product features and the way the value the product provides. Um, They say that they've made a significant investment to support the device, which is of course true. And another thing is that, Mylan actually does give away a lot of these. and They have a coupon program, although it only helps people that have insurance. Um, 80% of the people using that coupon program have paid nothing for EpiPens. Mylan also has a program to give schools these EpiPens for free. About half of U.S. schools have signed up. But there are also some issues there. The program only gives each school four EpiPens and the rest have to be bought themselves and then you get the opposite side of that coin where Mylan spent about 4 million dollars in 2012 and 2013 lobbying for access to EpiPens as a whole and they they pushed legislation such as the 2013 School Access to Emergency Epinephrine Act that's the drug in EpiPens which encouraged schools to stock epinephrine auto injectors which that's the generic way of saying an EpiPen so the I don't know I don't know if the company really has a valid defense here I can see a little bit of both Buckets.
1: Christine, I saw a study and I can't, unfortunately, I can't remember exactly where it is. I'll have to look it up to get back to to listeners. But I saw a study that showed that when generic drugs are about to face, or when drugs are about to face generic competition in the two years leading up to that launch of that generic competition, the prices of those drugs tend to rise substantially uh, to try and, I guess, bring forward some of those sales before they face that, that threat. And I think that it shouldn't be ignored by investors that earlier this year, the FDA actually rejected an approved generic um, alternative to the EpiPen that was being um, um, made by Teva Pharmaceutical. Uh, So Yes, there was supposed to be, this year, another competitor uh, on the market. Unfortunately, though, that got sidelined, and now Teva doesn't think they'll be able to get that product on the market until 2017, maybe 2018. At that point, price competition comes in, and the price should naturally go lower again. so, this could be a temporary phenomenon, and obviously there's lots of different things that are going into this too, including health insurance and the use of high deductible plans, uh, drug formularies that are maybe moving EpiPen higher up and requiring higher co-payments and higher co-insurance. This is really something that's affecting not necessarily people with Cadillac insurance plans, but more like uh, people with uh, middle-income families, maybe they're getting exchange, uh, insurance through the exchanges, or maybe um, uh, can't afford the, the, the best insurance plans on the market.
0: It definitely leaves you with a lot to think about, a lot of moving parts, uh, a lot of people with different opinions coming in. Um, definitely an interesting story to watch. Folks listening, thanks for tuning in. I, I hope you found today's show interesting. If you like Industry Focus, leave us a nice review or you know, a, a bad one, if, that, if that's how you really feel. Uh, your feedback it helps us make the show better, so we appreciate it. And It also helps us get our show in front of more eyeballs, or ear lobes, I guess, <laughs> since it's audio. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Year. I'm Christine Harges, and on behalf of myself and Todd Campbell, thanks so much for listening. And full on.
2: Everybody has a competition in their brain of good thoughts and bad thoughts. Hopefully, they win, the good thoughts win. For me, I always have both. I have like the thing I believe, the good thing. That's the thing I believe, and then there's this thing, and I don't believe it. But it is there. (laughs) It's always this thing, and then this thing. It's become a category in my brain that I call, of course, but maybe. (laughs) I'll give you an example. (laughs) Okay, like, of course, of course, children who have nut allergies need to be protected. Of course. We have to segregate their food from nuts, have their medication available at all times, and anybody who manufactures or serves food needs to be aware of deadly nut allergies. Of course. But maybe, (laughs) maybe if touching a nut kills you, you're supposed to die. (laughs) Of course not. Of course not. Of course not. I have a nephew who has that. I'd be devastated if something happened to him. But maybe, (laughs) maybe if we all just do this for one year, we're done with nut allergies forever. No, of course not.